3: have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, April 15th, 2011. This week, episode 205 comes to you from Studio C in beautiful McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. It's a glorious day out there. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotney. Hey, Joe. Pleasure to be here. Good day, Cliff. At the controls is our engineer, Austin Stone Cold Novak. Today's segments include the IAQ Radio trivia question. We're going to have a USGBC, U.S. Green Building Council lawsuit update and discussion with Dr. Elliot Horner. We'll have a halftime with Tom Scarlett from Indoor Environment Connections. We'll go back to our interview, then we'll bring in Dr. Dietrich Wild for the roundup, and we'll finish things up. Check out our Facebook page when you get a chance at IAQ Radio program. We've also been updating and adding a blog every week to the IAQ Radio website. Check it out at the blog link on www.iaqradio.com. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors.
1: Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com.
3: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at JohnDon.com. Clean Facts
1: and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services
3: and products. To contact the show, just follow the link on the show invitation or go to iaqradio.com and follow the link that says Go to Show. You can get on the show there through the Talk Shoe program. Talk Shoe is the uh, group we go through here, and you can also download the show later from the same site or get the show from iTunes. Don't forget, we also have those ABIH, IICRC, and ACAC renewal credits. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe.
1: Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email at 2cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, text in your answer via your computer. Congratulations! <laughs> To Big Bear for answering last week's trivia question identifying the Shanghai World Financial Center as the partially constructed steel high-rise building which caught fire in August of 2007 and defied all known physics when it did not collapse. The IEQ Radio trivia question for Friday, April 15, 2011 has been sponsored by Cochrane & Associates, the indoor air quality industry's dedicated marketing and public relations firm. Now for this week's trivia question. What percentage of all energy in the United States is used to heat, coal,
3: illuminate, and ventilate buildings? Back to you, Joe. Good one, Cliff. All right. Today's guest is Dr. Elliot Horner. Dr. Horner is the laboratory director and a principal consultant for air quality sciences. His Ph.D. is in plant pathology from Virginia Polytechnic Institute, also has a master's of science in mycology, from the SUNY, the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse, and a BA in Botany Comparative Literature from the University of North Carolina. He's a tar heel. After receiving his PhD, Dr. Horner completed a National Institutes of Health funded fellowship characterizing fungal allergens at Tulane University School of Medicine before joining the research faculty in the Allergy Clinical Immunology section where he established a bioaerosols and indoor mold research program. He served as the chair in 2002 of the Environmental Microbiology Laboratory Accreditation Committee of the American Industrial Hygiene Association's Lab Quality Assurance Program and served on the Analytical Accreditation Board through 2003. He's also a member of the ASTM International Subcommittee D2208 on Sampling and Analysis of Mold and their subcommittee on biological deterioration. Dr. Horner has conducted numerous investigations and complaint resolutions in a variety of buildings. He's also a fellow of the American Academy of Asthma, Allergy, and Immunology, and a lead, Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, AP. Welcome to the show. We've got some music for Dr. Horner. My rival. Dr. Horner, do we have you on the line? Yes, uh,
4: glad to be here, Joe. Thanks for inviting me.
3: Welcome back. It's been it's been a little while since we've had you on. And the last time we were more into uh, botany and mycology, and today we thought we would ask you to help us update listeners a little on the United States Green Building Council and the uh, LEED program, and there was a lawsuit filed. We had a show about it last last year in November, actually, but before we get into that, let's let's get a little background for listeners. What is the U.S. Green Building Council's LEED rating system all about?
4: Well, it's a multifaceted uh, point-based rating system uh, that gives um, certifications for buildings. I think is the, the word they use. And it stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. The overarching purpose is to encourage uh, best design, uh, greater efficiency, and hopefully there will be more of an emphasis in the future on uh, good indoor environmental quality in buildings. And and, uh, When enough points are accumulated, the building can be certified if additional points are uh, acute, uh, burns and a higher rating, uh, can be, um, earned. There are four ratings, uh, certified and then silver, uh, gold and platinum levels of certification. There are, uh, several, there are five general areas that need to be satisfied. Energy and atmosphere, uh, water conservation. Uh, site, uh, there's one category for site uh, parameters, and materials and resources, and indoor air quality. Uh, each of those general categories will have a couple of prerequisites uh, that need to be met, and then additional uh, design features and or uh, uh, construction activities, etc., that can be incorporated into a project uh, to earn points. And if you get enough points, you get a plaque to put on your wall. Yeah, and in a that nutshell, that's what it is. We can certainly um, go into more specifics if you'd like.
3: Well, let's let's do it this way. Uh, we, we're, I think a lot of the listeners are somewhat familiar with the Lead Program and the U.S. Green Buildings Council, and and we can uh, they can always listen to the past shows we've done on that to get a little better description. But what I'd like to do at this point is, you know, we had. Uh, Henry Gifford on in November of last year he had filed a lawsuit against USGBC and and we kind of reviewed the rating system a little and I wanted to get you if you would to give us a little bit of uh, your perspective on what has changed here I know LEED has been revised several times I think it's about I might be 60 I think 98 maybe 12 years old or so can you give us, our listeners, a little idea of what types of revisions they have made recently? I know it's pretty lengthy, but maybe you could just give us a quick overview of the key points.
4: Sure. Uh, to the best I can, there is um, the the most important change from my perspective, coming at it from the uh, IAQ standpoint, is uh, from the last uh, edition to the current uh, 2009 edition, The number of points available for indoor environment, for environmental quality uh, category actually went down. I I certainly thought that was a step backwards, but if you, uh, as with anything else that's done by consensus, there are lots of people concerned about uh, water conservation or reusing recycled materials, and those, they're going to fight for additional points in those categories, Uh, and we don't think had strong enough Folks uh, on the appropriate committees apparently to argue for additional uh, indoor air quality points. At any rate, the let me see some of the changes. Uh, there's some clarifications that uh, were made. Uh, you know, development density and community uh, connectivity is one that uh, went from one point to five points. Let me see there. Uh, what prerequisite water use reduction uh, went to uh, to 20 percent. Uh, Using water efficiency, uh, water efficient landscapes uh, went up from one point to two points. Certainly, uh, I'm all in favor of water conservation. That helps in a number of different ways. Uh, but um, uh, so a lot of these are difficult to argue against. But uh, it's the overall uh, emphasis on outdoors and the environment, which is good. But we need to, I believe, also be focused on the indoor environments and the uh, exposure conditions to people in the buildings. Uh, the, one of the uh, positive steps uh, in the last round is I believe they have introduced more of the concept of continuous maintenance, and they're, they're planning for uh, updates every three years. And looking forward, that certainly will provide the opportunity to uh, try and improve, streamline various uh, activities that are sanctioned under the LEED program. And also, it will provide the opportunity to identify points or credits that are not uh, providing the um, output that they're intended to provide, and th- th- then they could be modified or deleted if they're proving actually just not to be useful. Uh, there are certainly a you know, number of uh, places on the internet where you can find comparisons of what the old system was versus the new system. Uh, there are uh, so I would encourage your listeners to go take a look at it, at that for for more specifics. But some of the uh, some of the increases, uh, as I said, are tough to argue against. But uh, the indoor environmental quality it really didn't get the uh, respect that it should have. I mean, that still seems to be sort of the redheaded stepchild uh, category in, in in the lead world. Um, but they're they're moving forward. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of a, in terms of. This whole lead aspect, and where we're going with uh, discussions later about um, uh, the lawsuit, I guess I'm sort of a glass half full guy. You know, we can uh, continue to make it better as opposed to uh, focusing on the parts that are not working. Certainly, the parts that are not working need to be identified so they can be approved. I, I definitely will agree with that. But um, that's uh, sort of the, the key points from my perspective as to what what's changed leading up to the current version of lead.
3: I think his primary concern was the energy efficiency points or the the methods for evaluating or projecting energy efficiency, and he really was concerned that that we don't get any actual numbers once the building's built. Now, you mentioned the continuous maintenance. I'm curious, do you know if they've done anything in this latest revision to – Help ensure that these green buildings are also more energy efficient.
4: Uh, now, the continuous maintenance I mentioned was for the lead program, not not buildings. Um, I don't. I, I'm not as uh, uh, schooled on the energy part of it as Mr. Gifford is. Certainly, that's not my area. Uh, I don't know if anything, if there's any part of the lead program which gathers data after occupancy. Now, that's certainly something that I would uh, support, uh, particularly from the indoor air quality standpoint. I know that uh, some of my colleagues in the indoor air quality uh, world who are not familiar with LEED uh, find it quite surprising that the uh, what's considered an environmental quality credit uh, does not apply to the building once people are in it. Uh, so, I mean, there, there, I think there's a lot of misperceptions about LEED and what LEED is supposed to be or what LEED claims to be. And those are opportunities for improvement. Um, but I don't, I'm don't. i not aware of any uh, portion of LEED that uh, requires or gives you any credit for verification of water use or energy use or anything else after the building is occupied. It's pretty much a uh, design and construction
3: uh, program. Okay. Cliff?
1: I think I'd like to discuss, you know, some more the the difficulties in terms of consensus uh, process standards writing because it seemed like you were not happy that they minimized indoor air quality and focused more on some of the uh, you know exterior considerations such as you know landscape water maintenance and things like that. Um, why do you account for, that? or how how do we account for that? Is it because um, you, you know the, the, the committees have too many? You know, it would seem that if, if people are voting one way or another, or the committees stacked.
4: Um, I don't know if they're um, stacked or not, but the um, uh, in my experience in dealing with consensus bodies and committees is such that if you are dealing with several different topics like LEAD does is different categories of uh, activities, it is uh, frequently the, the middle ground that you can get people to vote on and agree on is one which has... The smallest number of people upset with you, and uh, those people that are upset with a given choice being equally or about equally divided. Either you know, saying you're either not strong enough or uh, too strong. I know that I experienced that when uh, I was on the consensus board for. Green Guard, Environmental Institute's Moisture Management and Mold Prevention Standard. There were a lot of people who said that there were aspects of that that were not stringent enough, and other people that said it was too stringent, it would never be practical. Once we got those two groups in about the equal numbers, we figured that's probably the middle ground and how to go forward. So I can certainly appreciate the difficulties of getting a consensus document out. It's the one that's going to... Uh, What comes out is going to be the product that uh, the least number of people find so objectionable as to to vote negative, vote vote against it. Uh, And that's not always a pretty
3: uh, system. Uh, What I'd like to do is follow up on that a little bit because I maybe, you know, I think as a program that focuses on indoor air quality, indoor environmental quality, building science, disaster restoration, this is a, a topic of interest to our listeners. And when I was reviewing for the show, I saw that the USGBC had an announcement out. They had a new program. I want to say it was for healthcare facilities. That um, they're now doing a rating system for healthcare facilities. And I, I, what catches my attention isn't always the that part, but it was the very end, where it described what the U.S. Green Building Council is, and they said at the end that it's a Washington D.C.-based U.S. Green Building Council is committed to a prosperous and sustainable future for our nation through cost-efficient and energy-saving green buildings. And when I looked at that, I looked, I thought, well, it doesn't really, you know, it does mention cost-efficient. It's pretty strong emphasis on energy-saving, which we've touched on. We can talk a little bit more about that. But then there's that fuzzy word, green buildings, and whether that means, good indoor air quality or a building that you built that didn't use a lot of certain resources or a building that's going to be long lasting or, or etc i think that's where there's some some confusion and maybe some fuzziness but i guess the follow-up is this is it maybe difficult to define what good indoor environmental quality is and to to measure good indoor environmental quality do you think that could have been part of the reason they didn't focus in that direction a little bit more
4: Oh, that could be, and I. Um, you, you bring up a good topic there, broaching bro, the, uh, the greenwashing aspect, and I should pause just a moment to uh, point out that uh, my uh, the folks at AQS were very kind about letting me uh, do this interview. But I should point out that these are Elliot Horner's opinions and not the opinions of uh, Air Quality Sciences. But um, the greenwashing aspect is. Uh, well, I say you—you you said green, uh, quoting from uh, USGBC. I'm sure they did not use that term. But uh, the huge question over this entire field is, what what, what is meant by green, and who um, is, is the term used in the in the same manner by different people? Uh, I think we would all agree that is not the case. We we see it used um, a lot of different ways on different products and by different groups. Uh, so I think we would have a, a huge step forward by uh, getting some agreement on that. I don't anticipate that happening in the next few years, but um, it certainly is important to define your terms. Uh, coming at it from a science standpoint, it's always useful to define your terms and make sure that uh, if you don't agree on how to use the term, at least the different people that are using it differently can state this is what I mean by green. Uh, something uh, that overlaps a good deal with that was the... the uh, establishment of a sustainability committee uh, within ASTM International. That was, I believe, uh, about 18 months ago. And at the meeting where that uh, sustainability committee was set up, it was interesting to hear the discussions on just what was meant by sustainability. And sustainability, arguably, I think, is probably... Uh, less ambiguous than green, but there was still a good bit of discussion as to what uh, should be incorporated into the term uh, sustainability. And you get to green and it's it's, it's all over the place. It's like the the word organic was for groceries, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, So, uh, is there too much emphasis on saving energy and uh, directing, you know, land use decisions, uh, uh, trying to constrain suburban sprawl? Is there too much emphasis on the outdoor part of it, uh, perhaps? Uh, but, so those are, as I said before, those are, are good uh, directives for all of us to be following. But it's the reason we put buildings up, the great majority of the buildings we put up, are for putting people in them. And we uh, I certainly think the people aspect should get a bit more emphasis than, than we've seen in uh, the lead system so far. Does that answer your question, that Green, or would you need to circle back? I think that's,
3: that's good because it's a tough question to answer. We're not going to settle it here today, obviously, but I thought you know, that it would be something we should at least set up. And then a little later we'll talk a little bit more about how building owners can make good choices and building professionals and consumers can make and ask the right questions. I know you're involved with some projects on that. But before we do that, Cliff and I want to uh, get two two more setup questions in first to kind of establish the background. And one is this LEED, Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, AP designation. I'm not even sure what the AP stands for, uh, Dr. Horner, and you are a lead AP. I'm just curious, what is a lead AP, and how often do you do this type of certification work i assume they assist with the certification process i'm pretty sure so anyway
4: hey, hang on one second let me have those two uh, i had a note to myself uh before we leave the greenwashing. Please, uh H&S does have a white paper on defining green products that's available if any of your um listeners want to uh, they can get that at the area website uh areas.org uh, has, a, has a white paper on defining green products, and TerraChoice also has a paper available on uh, the seven cents of greenwashing. But uh, so we can leave that at this point, but there certainly is are some good uh, independent uh, organizations that have put uh, some of like that. I'd but, also, uh, let, me,
3: let me throw in a, a quick uh, note to the listeners, too. If you get a chance, you might want to go back and listen to our show with the AQS president, I believe it is, Anthony Worthen. That's correct, he's present. That was a great show we did. We appreciated him coming on, and we did go into uh, those two documents a little bit more in detail there. So for those of you that are interested, that's another place you can look for those. Okay, let's go to the lead AP question then, if if that works for you, Dr. Horner. Sure. Sure.
4: The lead lead AP, um, I am a lead AP, so I should know this. I believe the AP stands for Accredited Professional. I'm a lead accredited professional. What does that do? Um, Well, it does several things. One, it entitles me to put Lead AP on my business card. uh, But it also gives uh, a project, if uh, if a project is um, seeking lead certification. Uh, then you get, additional, you get an additional point that the lead AP is helping coordinate all those efforts. Uh, it, it basically demonstrates, and the, and the reason that I pursued it, it, it demonstrates some very basic level of understanding of the different systems uh, of a building, and uh, that's. I, I also can serve as lead AP on a building project. I have not. Uh, that's a little. There, there are several areas of the of a lead project that are beyond my expertise. Uh, so I have not chosen to do that there is uh, there are changes in the lead AP system the newest system if I'm going to maintain that um, I will have to participate in uh, some some lead building projects Uh that's a decision I have not uh, made yet uh, there are there some substantial changes to the to the lead AP program actually the lead AP is, is, will be a legacy. Uh, program here shortly uh, and uh, we'll switch to some other designations which do separate more or less the people who just studied the book took the test uh, and got lead AP like I did versus people who are actually out there in the field uh, rolling up their sleeves in the building projects and, uh, and doing and compiling the information needed for uh, lead certification applications for buildings.
1: Cliff, well, is that answer your question? Absolutely. It, it, it does. Um, Elliot, the Henry Gifford lawsuit has gotten the U.S. Green Building Council's attention, uh, your attention, uh, the attention of some of your industry peers uh, and colleagues. Uh, what's really the response to this lawsuit? Well...
4: Uh, and again, I've focused mostly on the indoor air quality part, and that was not the real focus of, uh, I believe, either of the two main points in the lawsuit. So it has not, the, the lawsuit has not, so far as I am aware, had a big impact on the indoor air quality uh, in circles. I know a lot of engineers um, were, uh, how shall I put this, uh, very interested in uh, the progress of the lawsuit, because uh, especially any engineers who have been involved in projects where they saw counterproductive activities or design features put into uh, buildings simply to get a lead point. And we have seen, from an indirect quality standpoint, we've seen some of that too. We've seen some a uh, couple of pretty crazy uh, HVAC configurations that uh, we didn't understand at all what was what was the intent until it was explained that oh, this is uh, configured in this way so that we would qualify for an extra lead point. And we, uh, I have seen some of those myself where. Overall, it was counterproductive because it does not uh, benefit the total operating system of the building, or actually, you know, produce some detrimental impact somewhere else. So, any uh, that, that certainly is a, an issue, and uh, I believe it's that type of thing which uh, spurred the, the folks to file a lawsuit. Um, but I think it's lawsuit you know, got you know, the lawsuit's probably being followed far more closely in the energy uh, engineer. Uh, energy and engineering community that it is in
3: the indoor air quality community. I, I think, from what I understand, that that's accurate. And let me just before we go to halftime, update viewers a little on the lawsuit. Uh, Henry Gifford had had been the prime person behind this, but there were a few others that were also. It's a class action lawsuit, so you, there are others involved. And and as I understand it, in, in communicating with Henry about the issues, he sent me a few documents and I'll try and summarize the best I can and I'm again speaking for Joe Hughes just like Elliot speaking for Elliot Horner Dr. Horner speaking for them not for his company the best I understand it is that uh, the the suit was amended that I am not sure if they dropped the char, one of the uh, allegations or one of the the uh, I'm not sure the term but I guess it's an allegation and They added some additional plaintiffs on it. I noticed Andy Osk's name was on there and another gentleman who's an architect in, I believe, Virginia, and then a a young lady who was um, out in Arizona the last I checked. And then there was a response recently from the USGBC basically stating that they hadn't shown any harm, essentially, or any damages to their income or to their personal businesses and that, therefore, the lawsuit should be dismissed. The second major point that I noticed that was, I thought, a pretty interesting part of the lawsuit was the false advertising component of things in that the plaintiffs felt that the USGBC was not advertising properly and that they were advertising and, and people were expecting something that they may not necessarily get whenever they got their building certified through the USGBC's LEED program. And again, the USGBC came back with a pretty lengthy list of cases that showed that um, in their opinion, they were not obviously, they were not obviously claiming they were not guilty of false advertising. So right now that was all just recently done and we'll be just waiting to see where the next step is, whether or not the courts will go ahead and dismiss the lawsuit or whether they will allow it to go on one or on several of the different uh, charges within it. And uh, it should be interesting, and we'll keep listeners updated on that. So that's the best overview I can give of it, Cliff, at this point. And, uh I think what we might want to do now is go to um, our halftime segment here. So Dr. Horner will be back shortly. We'll have some more questions on the USGBC program, and we've got a couple questions on the Indoor Air 2011 presentations that some of the AQS folks are doing. So hang in there. We'll be right back. We also have halftime with Tom Scarlett today, so we've got some interesting news on the Florida legislation and EPA's funding, I believe. Our association sponsors are the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com.
1: The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org.
3: And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com.
1: Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental and consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com.
3: And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com.
1: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com.
3: and, of course, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfactswithanx.com and cmmonline.com.
1: Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. <laughs>
3: that out special for you tom scarlett editor of indoor environment connections <laughs> <laughs> Do we have you on the line great to be here good to have you what's new uh i understand you have some uh, an update on the florida mold licensing nightmare i guess I, in my eyes it's been a nightmare anyway i don't know if others would describe <laughs> it that way what's new tom yeah um yeah, it
2: seems like uh, down in Florida, they're they're on this push to deregulate uh, a lot of different about two dozen different professions, and among those are you know home inspectors, mold remediators, and assessors. And for a while, there was, there was a bill pending that um, would have essentially sort of wiped out the licensing requirements. But it looks now like the bill that is probably going to make it to the governor's desk um, doesn't you know eliminate all the requirements, but it does uh, relax quite a few of them in terms of the educational requirements. Um, my understanding is it would basically allow anyone with a with a high school diploma who passes a test to uh, put themselves forward as a as a mold remediator, and um, so it would significantly relax the requirements. But there would still be some there would still be a licensing requirement, and there would still be some uh, you know test you would have to pass to uh, to get that.
3: They- and. Um, yeah, go ahead. Do they specify? Is it still the? It, at, at one point, it was the American Council for Accredited Certification (ACAC) exam. Do you think it's still going to be that, or is that still up in the air?
2: I believe it is going to be the ACAC. Okay, I think that's correct. That's actually
3: a pretty tough and exam. I'm somewhat familiar with it, so it, it, even though they relax some of the requirements, you will still have to be on top of things.
2: Yeah, and this bill has passed the uh, the Florida House of Representatives. It hasn't passed the Florida Senate yet. It looks it looks like there's a good chance that it will, and the governor – the governor hasn't specifically said he'd sign it, but he's a he's a conservative Republican who's uh, very enthusiastic about deregulation, and I think it's highly likely he would sign it if it reached his death.
3: And that – does it still require insurance, do you know? Um, yes, the
2: insurance requirements remain. That's correct.
3: Okay. So they've lightened up the education, they've still required the exam, but the insurance is also still required. All right, great. What else do you have for us, Tom? Well,
2: you know, there's been a big story. Uh, you know, I'm here in the, in the Washington area, and um, the big story on Capitol Hill was the, the funding for the budget. You know, they almost shut down the government last week, and then they had a last-minute agreement. And it looked like there were going to be some substantial cuts um, in this year's funding, and for example, the Environmental Protection Agency was going to face a budget cut of about 15%, which would be a, a big cut to take out of just this year's budget. You know, I and mean, the year's, of, you know, fiscal year is actually not half over. But it turns out that the budget cuts in the in the continuing resolution turned out to be a lot less substantial than had been promised. Um, I mean, much less so. They have been talking about cuts of like 38 billion across the board and the government, and turned out to be like I don't know, just in the millions. So. Um, it looks like the budget cuts for agencies like EPA and, and Housing and Urban Development are not going to be as substantial as, as it seemed just, just last week. So
3: it doesn't look as bad, at least for for the remainder of this year, but what about any – well, that that is just the remainder of this year then, I guess.
2: Yeah, this this fiscal year, which ends on the end of September, actually. I see. they are just now getting around to funding and <laughs> doing the funding for this fiscal year, which is more than half over, right?
3: Amazing, isn't it? All right. Well, Tom, can you join <laughs> us? Can you stick around and join us for the roundup? Yeah, I'll stick around. Great. We'd love to have you. Okay. Let's Hi. get uh, Dr. Horner back on the line. Hello, Dr. Horner. Do we have you back?
4: Uh, Yeah, fellow John, I'm still here.
3: All right. Great. Great. Let's move on to uh, a little bit more on lead and then. I'd also like to talk to you again about uh, indoor air, and we've had a text question to make sure that we talk a little bit about the Indoor Air Conference. So we'll be sure to do that uh, for guest seven there. Can can you tell us a little bit about, I know one of the main contentions in the Gifford uh, et al. lawsuit versus USGBC was the energy savings estimation process. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? energy savings estimation process, or at least what your thoughts are on some of the programs available or used for doing this energy estimating?
4: Uh, no, I really can't. Um, I'll take a stab at it, but as I said before, that's not my area of expertise. I know that the um, uh, there are various methods of coming up with calculations, but I believe Mr. Gifford's uh, principal objection was that these are calculations... Uh, derived from product information and uh, other sources of information before the building's ever put together. Uh, And they are also then benchmarked uh, against averages of buildings in an area. It would be far more, far more robust a method would be to, you know, actually have some uh, direct measurements. And there are some opportunities for direct measurements, you know, looking at your utility bill and such, I believe is one of the methods that is that is used. But I I think it would be better if we could have a pool of information of data from a number of buildings to look at and see if they're actually uh, doing what is expected. I certainly do not disagree with Mr. Gifford uh, on, on that uh, desire. Uh, as I interpreted that, I don't want, certainly don't want to speak for him, but I think that's you know, one of the things that he would like to see. And that's... Far, far uh, more robust than uh, modeling some uh, modeling the outcome based on uh, product performance or equipment performance specifications, um, and then so I guess that's probably my two cents worth on, on that issue.
3: Okay, Cliff, did you want to Okay, let me let me continue on this then. Now there was another statement uh, supposedly made by the USGBC claiming the average new lead building saves 25 to 30% more energy than a typical building. Do do you think that was, let me put it this way. Do you agree that, that they made that statement and, or do you think it was worded a little differently than that?
4: I'm not certain of the exact wording that, that, that certainly is uh, a statement and, They've cited one study that I've seen uh that something to that to that effect. yes, they have put information like that out. um I know there was a lot of criticism uh, at one point because uh, the comparison of the two groups of buildings, the lead buildings versus the non lead buildings looked at uh, compared the average energy consumption of one group of buildings to the median uh, energy consumption of another building. So there was some dispute over why, why the different statistical uh, parameters were used. And uh, as I understand the, from the what I've read about that particular study in comparison, some of those buildings were laboratory buildings which are uh, very intense users of, of energy because there's a requirement through a good part of those buildings for the air handling system to be a single pass uh, airflow, that is, it's all outdoor air being passed through the laboratory because you don't want to recirculate anything that comes uh, that comes out of the laboratory because you'll not know what's in it. Um, now, I, w- I would argue that the disqualification of that study would be why you would want to start off with buildings of similar type, and you would want to filter out buildings that have dramatically different uh, requirements or designs for ventilation system Uh, because that's not going to be a real uh, honest comparison either. And I don't know what that would do to that particular study, but uh, here again, I think there's a point, the the bottom line point here, something that Mr. Gifford now probably would agree with. We need a better pool of information from these buildings uh, and a better pool of information from non-LEED buildings to be able to make uh, these types of comparisons. And uh, also, uh, since the LEED system, if it survives, uh, will now be uh, managed with its own continuous maintenance uh, aspect. So every three years, when uh, the method of to the procedure of the LEED program is being revised, reviewed, edited, etc. At some point there would be some as some evidence to be put on the table to say you know here are the results from real field measurements of buildings uh, that are performing or are not performing the way that we think they are therefore we uh, we can identify which credits in the lead system need to be revised deleted expanded et etc um so that's uh, I think yes, they, they did use this. Uh, they have made statements like that. Uh, there certainly are uh, warts, so to speak, on, on the study that uh, that I saw that they were citing. But um, uh, again, I would criticize those studies for the comparisons for different reasons than I've seen other people criticize them. But um, that, that's the, the solution there. I think is to compile with that effect. Uh, a database, and so that we can actually uh, stop arguing about whether we should be looking at the average or the median, and see how we we, we move forward. Now, it's going to be very difficult in a lot of cases to get in, uh, building owners, particularly of large buildings, uh, to share that information because they'll consider it in some uh, cases to be proprietary. Uh, they will consider, you know, the, the creation of some uh, database of all the buildings in a city or all the types of buildings of a certain type uh, to give competitive advantage to their uh, commercial advantage to their competitors. Uh, So, yeah, I can understand the reluctance of a lot of owners to to share that information, but there should be some way to disguise or to provide the the information or to make it uh, anonymous in some way so that these larger types, these larger questions could be addressed with actual real-world data rather than modeling uh, predictions.
3: You know, we had a little email back and forth and and you included uh, henry and i thought it was a lot of fun and and, and i enjoyed that and i really impl- i appreciate number one you're giving us your frank opinions not those of aqs and i'm glad you remembered to make that statement and we'll make it again but during that give and take i guess one of the questions that he, that he came up with was how can you support a system that has never been shown to save any any energy at all And I thought your response was was very interesting and well thought out. And and it included a little bit of what you just said with respect to if it survives. Can you you kind of tell our listeners a little bit about why you do still support the system, even though I think we both agree it really has been difficult, if not impossible in some cases, to show whether it's saving energy or not?
4: Well, um, and I... I should have had that uh, email exchange in front of me. I'll see if I can get it up here and remember what it was I said. But um, the, it, it, uh, in my opinion, uh, lead, uh, the LEAD program should be seen as, uh, as a work in progress. Uh, it's not perfect. I certainly would agree with that. But I don't think that we should necessarily kill it uh, because it's not perfect. Um, I guess the analogy I could use there is um, uh, if we see the LEAD system as a horse with a broken leg, uh, Mr Gifford's uh, perhaps reaching for his rifle, and i'm uh, reaching for a phone to call the veterinarian. Um, I think we certainly uh, there are dramatic improvements that, in my opinion, need to be made, uh, but I don't think we should kill it however the uh, the marketplace is what's ultimately going to make that decision uh, if in fact, the lead program continues to improve and uh, people the owners or the design engineers or whomever. Are able to see that lead buildings really truly are better, then uh, it, it will survive. If it uh, if that cannot be shown uh, in a definitive way, uh, ultimately people will see that it does not have value and it will die. Um, the uh, so so yeah, that's uh, I guess in, in a nutshell what what I was alluding to. I believe with that email exchange. Is there something else that uh, I
3: said you wanted to bring up? Yeah, I'll help you with that in a second. But yeah. Cliff has a question. Yeah,
1: I, I, I think. One of the the points that that I think is very important is that there was a huge budget behind this. Uh, The first two initials are U.S. that are in this. So what happens is there's this built-in credibility that circulated what some consider to be made-up stuff. And this... Information has been incorporated in construction, people have gotten points, people have gotten tax credits, people have gotten, uh, you know, loans, you know, based upon this and and so on and so forth. And a good reputation for their building. And a good reputation and, and so on and so forth. And if this is all based upon a false premise, if this is all based upon a house of cards, then... It still can survive because I mean Henry's not doing this for the money. Henry's doing this based upon principle. You know he believes that this is a house of cards, and you know he he he's troubled by that. But but you know my impression is whoever has the most money is going to prevail.
3: Well, you know another. Let me give you another key point that I felt you brought up in answering that question, and that was that. Any system that discourages suburban sprawl and thereby preserving habitat, agricultural lands, and watersheds is is one that you would support. And I think that was one of the key points you made during this kind of give and take here. Would you you like to follow up on that a little bit?
4: Well, yes, there are um, uh, saving water, uh, curbing or discouraging uh, suburban sprawl uh putting IAQ on the table, period. Uh I think those are all good things that uh to some degree lead if it didn't uh certainly didn't period I don't think it can claim to have initiated any of those, but it does bring those points to the table also. It's not just about energy and atmosphere, uh that that's certainly an important point. But uh the the fact that there are those five different categories of points in the lead system is if you could put take everything else away and just say You've got to look at multiple factors and uh, include all of those in the calculus. That is an important point because that, uh, we see that the the building is, is going to operate as a system and not just as the, the bricks and mortar and the equipment inside, but the uh, how it interacts with the location, uh, how does it interact with the community? Is it located close to public transportation, et cetera? What are the people that are going to be working or living in the building doing? Um, it helps. Um, so sorry, I mean, all those are points or aspects, uh, beneficial aspects that uh, derive and, or, or are um, fostered by the lead system. So I, mean, I don't think we, at least what I was saying, yes, I can support lead, even though uh, there may be something going on with the man behind the curtain. Uh, I'm certainly not denying that there's none of that. I have no idea, but I'm, I'm not as well versed in the energy aspects as Mr. is. We've already uh, mentioned that a couple of times. And there may be some stuff going on over there that's not uh, as above board as it should be. I don't know. Uh, I will leave that to others. But I do know that the LEED system does bring several points to the table uh, that are very valuable. You know, not only does should an owner, if an owner is going for, for LEED uh, certification, uh, yeah, they want to save energy. Cause that benefits them directly. You know, whoever's operating the building won't have to pay as much uh, for the energy cost. Uh, will it also will it save water? Will we reduce uh, materials, uh, waste materials going into landfills? Will we um, encourage people to reuse building materials if they can be reused? And, uh, I mean, these are, uh, and will we make uh, position buildings and have and have buildings of sufficient density, that is, uh, height to vertical density? Uh, will we have? Um, buildings that are easy to get to without having to drive your car and park in a parking lot, um, you know, something that can be accessed by uh, public uh, transport. And, and is it is a decent daylighting inside. Is it a decent place for people to be inside. And we have, you know, brought a bunch of these factors together, and just the fact that you've got these different factors on the table means that if you can't just build a building to be energy efficient. You know, if it makes people sick to be in the building, and it's a hassle to get to the building, you're not really pushing forward. You know, you got to push forward on several different fronts at once. Um, that being said, it's my understanding that the origins of the lead are out of the architectural and design field. Uh, the, at least, is what I understand that that's where it came from. That's going to be their emphasis. Obviously, though. the time was I think these were referred to as high efficiency buildings, referring to getting more efficient energy use and water conservation per, primarily. But it's expanded beyond that. So I think, uh, if nothing else, the system is worthy of support because it does emphasize to us that we've got to be juggling multiple factors at once and trying to move forward with it. So I think that touches on what went back and forth in that email exchange. But that, to me, is, is worthy uh, by itself of um, Supporting it now. Was there anything done with energy uh, audits and tax credits? There may be. Uh, I certainly uh, don't don't have any direct knowledge of that, but it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, there's money on the table. People are going to um, uh, be looking very carefully at the wording to see how they can um, how, how it can be turned to their advantage. I, I'm, I'm aware of that, but um, I, I think it's still a program worthy of consideration for the reasons I just outlined.
3: Now let me go. I've got a text question first, which should be pretty quick to answer. It says, does anyone know if the U.S. Department of Energy and the EPA are considering a base-type study of lead buildings? So the base study was the EPA's study on indoor environmental quality. It gave us a baseline of indoor environmental quality in a bunch of buildings around the country. Are you familiar if anything like that is being considered?
4: I'm not aware of any, but I, I would not necessarily be aware, of it. I, I would certainly support it. It would be a great idea if we want to save energy and um, you know foster energy independence in this country, uh, which I think is certainly uh, something we should be striving for, then knowing what we're doing right, what, looking at what we're doing and figuring out what parts of it are working well and what parts are not, is a very useful step to figure out what else do we do moving down, on down the road. Uh, and certainly... Uh, So something like the base study uh, would be one way to go about it. Uh, It's difficult to do those in a rigorous scientific manner in this country uh, because as a scientist, if I were going to be sampling buildings, the first thing I would want to do is make sure that it is uh, truly representative and random and random in the statistical sense, which means equal probability of of being included or not included. Um, But uh, you'd want to do that. Uh, However in order to do that, you have to have cooperation from the owners. You have to knock on the door and say, you were selected, you don't get to say yes or no. We are coming in and and monitoring your building. And I don't think you're going to get that in the United States. So there will always be that element of uh, how representative uh, is your sample uh, of the building stock.
3: However you were holding the phone just now is perfect, Dr. Horner. It kind of went in and out of the last question. So, and we got thanks for the text, Guest 8. I want to, before we go to the roundup, and and we may. Uh, can you stay a little longer than usual here, or do you have to run right after this one o'clock point?
4: No, I, I can stay around because I know we we're going to. You want to talk about into our air, which I think would be very useful. I
3: really do, and I. But before we do, I have one last point that I want to make sure you are able to comment on, with respect to understanding the effectiveness and how all the different building practices come together within a building. And one of the areas we didn't focus on as much as maybe you would like or others is the off-gassing and the VOCs. And I think that's an area where the LEED program, whether they still have as much emphasis on indoor environmental quality now as they had before, that was an area that I think – was an area where there have been significant improvements, and it's an area that you and AQS are closely involved in. Can you comment for us on what your thoughts are with respect to how we're doing on lowering emissions from the components going into the building?
4: Well, there's been a tremendous uh, opportunity for improvement, and many manufacturers uh, have sought that. Um, I don't want to get uh, to turn it into a commercial plug, but uh, go to the Green Guard Environmental Institute's website there's a listing of low uh, certified materials certified for low VOC emissions. Uh, VOCs are uh, still an area that uh, garner a lot of or there's a lot of confusion surrounding uh, VOCs uh, still in some of the lead, Uh, documents. uh, They're talking about VOC uh, based on a a content basis, which is very different from VOCs on an emission basis. I'm sure you're familiar with that, but the the South Coast Air Quality Management District has got rules on VOC content, particularly for uh, coatings, materials, etc., paints and varnishes, and that's to control, to to minimize outdoor pollution, Uh, and it does not correlate at all with necessarily with VOC emissions from materials and the VOC emissions from building materials or furnishings, furnishings, finishings, as well as construction materials, are what are going to be the source of VOCs in a building Uh, and that certainly needs to be uh, emphasized more. There's a phenomenal array of of, uh, compounds, chemical compounds, that off-gas from various uh, materials that are used in buildings, uh, particularly means construction materials, finishing materials, furniture, office equipment, um, our clothing, all sorts of things, and there's very minimal uh, good toxicology data on the effects of all these mixtures. Uh, everybody will look at a TBOC number and say it's very, very low, uh, therefore we're not going to be harming anybody, but we know nothing about how these compounds uh, interact with one another. And uh, the overall health aspect Uh, being given more emphasis in uh, in a program like LEED, whether it's LEED, if LEED survives, or or whatever else it is. um, The the health aspect of indoor air quality uh, probably should be be focused on more uh, than it is, and hopefully things are moving in that direction.
3: All right. Let's go to Indoor Air 2011. That's the International Society for Indoor Air Quality and Climate. I know they're Big conference that comes out every every so many years. Every I think eight. I think it's been eight years since it's been in the U.S. And we had a text question. One of the listeners wanted us to mention. If you go back a little bit, there, uh, Austin. Uh, there we go. Um, if you could comment about taking part in the forum on the professional practice of indoor environmental quality consulting at Indoor Air 2011.
4: Um, well, there is a forum uh, that's on the uh, schedule. Uh, it will be in part of the program. It is uh, was put together uh, by Wayne Baker. Uh, many of your listeners probably are, are familiar with Wayne. Have been very uh, active and uh, very well respected professional for a number of years. The uh, I don't want to give away too much, but uh, give just enough teaser to hopefully get some people to come. First of all, if you're not planning on coming. Uh, please go to the website for indoor air and take a look at it. It is probably well i't say probably it is the premier indoor air quality conference it's uh, held every three years, uh, and as you said it 's been a couple of times since it was in uh, north america it's uh, far more frequently uh, held in europe uh, you've got a chance to come this year to texas to to see it top researchers from around the world. Uh, will be there, and there also this year is a an emphasis, one of the program tracks uh, and themes of the conference is the practitioner, getting information from researchers down to practitioners, and part of what we will be talking about in this forum is also how to get information from the field, information from the guys who are out in the buildings with their sleeves rolled up, how do we get that information up to the researchers in terms of um, you know, what type of research is needed, what kind of answers are needed, and would be very helpful in the field. So anybody with field experience, please come and share your, your thoughts. The forum will specifically address uh, some issues such as what is, uh, what do we deem to be the, the minimal uh, educational uh, requirements or, or objectives that are needed, and what type of experience, uh, training, uh, apprenticeship type of experience. And then also uh, one part that I feel strongly about that I'll be trying to to get some information out to the audience about is how do we vet information, uh, whether it's a website page or a publication from a trade journal or from a scientific uh, journal. How do we look at it and and see if it's really of high quality or not? Uh, A little bit about the peer review process. Uh, And then also, of course, there'll be some comments, I'm sure, about consensus standards. On what kind of support do we need to? Would we like to see uh, for for those? What kind of scientific support would we like to see? Regardless of whether people have uh, a group, a consensus panel uh, has reached consensus on something or not, what do we have that really, from an empirical evidence standpoint? uh, What what kind of data do we have to to underpin these things? So that's what will be the topic of that forum. And I certainly uh, cannot emphasize enough that uh, anybody listening to this radio show has got an interest in indoor air quality. Uh, you ought to make a serious effort to try and get to this program, uh, visit this conference. It really is the top program in, in the world.
3: Yeah, i look forward to seeing you there. I also want to mention, well, before we go to the roundup, on May, I think it's May 6th. I have it here in my notes. We're going to have uh, Dr. Uh, I'm not finding it here. But if you look on the website um, tomorrow, we will have up uh, Dr. Mikhail um he's the World Health Organization's Bond leader or the the gentleman who's in charge of the World Health Organization's bond headquarters I believe and I I think it's Krasansky. I don't want to pronounce it pro- improperly, but we'll get that uh, out to everybody before we go here. Anyway, let's go to the roundup here while we're at it, and uh, let's go to get Dr. Wow on the line, see if we've got some final questions.
2: Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high, cut him
3: out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, him I got the name, Michael, Michael or Mikhail Krasanowski. Krasanowski, Dr. Krasanowski, will be here on May 6th, I believe is the date, and he's the World Health Organization's head of the Bonn office for the Center for Environment and Health, and we're looking forward to that show. I just got that set up, so I'm not quite as uh, aware of the details as we would like to be at this point. Let's bring Dr. Wow in, and by the way, listeners... Excellent. Dr. Dietrich, Wild. De- Dieter, do we have you on the line? Yes, sir. Can you hear me? Well, I can hear you fine. And by the way, listeners, this show is being recorded. I know some people have been bumped on and off. It's being recorded. The recording should come out very well. And we're also going to put this high up on the list for our programs that get transcribed. We're going to have transcriptions of all the shows in the near future. So just want to alert people to that. And uh, Dieter, any questions or comments? Well,
0: yeah, a general comment. I I think I like a rating system, and apparently the one we have right now, with which we didn't have any experience, is apparently not perfect. And, of course, uh, if, if, if I had to build a new house and I get all the information and I said I buy this window and that and that and that and that, and then after I'm all said and done, I don't look at my gas bill or electric bill or water bill or gas bill or whatever. So I think that is certainly something that is needed in the evaluation of a rating system. But on the other hand, um, we tinkered around for quite some time with engines for cars. And whenever you you look at it and say, this one has 100 horsepower, This one has 200 horsepower. Well, in the old days, most people didn't know that. They had an engine in a test room surrounded by five or six guys in white coats. They put the engine on the block, which, of course, was tuned to perfection with wonderful spark plugs and all of that. Interestingly... Uh, the oil pump was external. The water pump was external. The alternator was external, <laughs> and the power steering pump. If that, I, they, they didn't even run it. Now, after they they warmed it up and tuned it to perfection, they uh, finally measured of how many horsepowers uh, they got out of this engine under these conditions. They didn't tell you that, <laughs> and. They all made the same mistake, so there was, yeah, it compensated a little bit. But if you b- uh, bought a car and it says 120 horsepower is in it, don't ever believe that yeah, 120 horsepower is on the driving uh, axle, whether it's a front or rear wheel drive. So uh, we have been cheated before and we will be cheated again. But I think we need to, we, we should look into that. And do something. There's nothing wrong with criticizing a a a concept or a a testing procedure. No problem at all. The other thing, and we will never ever find. Uh, I I don't say that very often, but um, it is virtually impossible to find the effects of a combination of fifty uh, chemicals. Uh, coming from off-gassing, off, and I don't care what it is, whether it's body odor or clothing or the carpet or the furniture or whatever, the ceiling tiles, the paint and all of that, uh, that is virtually impossible because by and, large, by and large, we are at the very bottom of the dose response curve when we look at the toxicology of, of that, we're on the very bottom. And there isn't much you can get out of that. i rather use a higher exposure where I can measure repeatedly a response, and then I extrapolate backwards. And I said, okay, this one gave me that, this one gave me that, this one gave me that, then this one ought to be all right. And I still don't have a model in the back of my mind. I don't think anybody has one on how you can test the toxicology of uh, 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 all the chemicals in 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 my kitchen in my bedroom and in my living room uh, we can we have tested certain parts at the University of Pittsburgh we have worked for instance with the carpet uh, Institute and in, an, in a typical American uh, uh, house we have a lot of square feet or square yards for that matter of carpet and a heck of a lot of Stuff came out. Now, whatever it was, we had at the University of Pittsburgh, we had carpet samples, and we exposed mice to it, and we looked at their reaction. I I don't want to go. I can go into it, but that will take another two hours. looked at their reaction to that, and I said, hey, this isn't good. And then we talked to the carpet manufacturers. They said, hey, guys, can you do something without this and this and this and this? They said, yeah, it can be done. Why didn't they do it? They really didn't know. There was no test. There were people complaining about, oh, I put the new carpet in, and um, it it, it smells like new carpet in my house. Yeah, that is a chemical. I don't know what the chemical is. There were a couple of chemicals, common denominator chemicals, for several uh, uh, carpet samples, but they were not all the same. So it is tough, so we, we to 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 get into a good efficiency rating for a building. I said we have taken uh, I think we have taken the first step, and um, it certainly is not perfect. Uh, I think everybody agrees with that by now, but I think we are going in the right direction, and I think we have to look at the data which we have. We have to realize where we screwed up, and that happens quite frequently. Then you take three steps back, and I said, how the heck do we do it better? Uh, I have gone through that process in my life many, many times, and I'm afraid I have to do that in the future. <laughs> well, I shut up here, and uh, maybe somebody else wants to add or subtract from what I said.
3: Thank you. We appreciate, as always, you joining us. By the way, Dater, how do you pronounce M-I-C-H-A-L? Is it just Michael?
0: I I didn't uh, I was unmuted and it was just I didn't get M
3: M I C H A L is that I believe it's German or or Polish, is it Michael or Mikhail or? Uh, Oh, is that a question to me? Yeah, that's a question to you. You've got that uh, good German. How do you
0: how do you write it? You say M
3: M I C H A L.
0: That would be that is. Uh, Slavic. Okay. That is Mikhail in French it would be uh, Michel.
3: Okay. Thank in you.
0: German it would be Michael and they uh, in in Czech and in Polish and in Russian it's Mikail.
3: Okay. Uh, they
0: uh, pronounce it a little bit differently.
3: Thank you. We look forward to that show on uh, May May 6th I believe that will be. All right. Cliff, yeah. I know you had a question. We'll have uh, Tom Scarlett see if he has one quick. I winning. probably have more of a comment
1: Joe, you know, th- th- than a question. You know, and looking for the trivia question for this week, uh, I-, I came across some interesting data. You know, nineteen in two thousand and nine, the most energy efficient car was a Volkswagen turbo diesel with forty one miles per gallon. Two thousand and ten, the most efficient car was an Audi turbo diesel 42 miles per gallon the government doesn't give a subsidy for buying either of those cars which are more efficient and less expensive than a hybrid and my issue is this moral ground that products get organizations get people get that don't deserve it so That's my comment.
3: (laughs) All right. And uh, Tom Scarlett, did you have any questions or comments before we go? Tom, do we still have you? That was guest three. Did we have him unmuted? Uh, That could be the problem. Dr. Horner, before we – oh, there we go. He's gone. Okay. Tom got booted. Anyway, um, Dr. Horner, before we go, first, thank you. You're the only person – glad to be here. I mean, you're the only one that really was willing to come on – and discuss the issue. I thought you you did a great job and you were very professional and, and I really enjoyed the interaction with you and with Henry. And I think if we can all do this more often and, and talk about these issues in a, in a you, know, you know a way where we're not yelling at each other that I think we'll make some progress. Is there anything you would like to add before we go? I also wanted to mention some other presentations. We've got Marilyn Black doing IAQ study of schools in relation to flooring types and cleaning processes at IA 2011. Uh, Stephanie Mason, PhD, doing paint volatile organic compound emissions and volatile organic compound content comparison study. We've got uh, Anthony Worthen doing the solving FEMA's temporary housing unit formaldehyde issue. And you're along with uh, Mr. Nate Sanders doing efficacy assessment of a managed program for mold prevention in buildings. All sound like there will be great presentations at Indoor Air 2011. Anything you'd like to add before we go?
2: Yeah, just a
4: couple of comments. The um, the presentation that I'm making is uh, right along the lines of what we were talking about before. It's where we've actually gone out and uh, looked at the cost and estimated the benefits. Of, uh, of keeping moisture under control. Now, it's uh, we, we can't actually go out and measure a, a problem prevented. We we do have to rely on an estimate there, but that's our attempt to do exactly what we were talking about uh, from the energy standpoint, from a moisture prevention, moisture problem prevention standpoint. But just in closing, I'll mention that the uh, that uh, and I appreciate Dr. Wild's comments about DSCs. Uh, the one that. Uh, that new carpet smell, by the way, is 4-phenylcyclohexene, or 4-PCH, which is one of the specific chemicals that has to be looked for in the LEED EQ uh, 3.2 credit. Uh, but more, much more about uh, VOCs uh, can certainly be found uh, at with the Green at GreenGuard uh, website. They have a free uh, product guide uh, that will serve. It's designed for people who are specifiers as purchasers. If anybody's interested in the uh, VOC issue, it's certainly a, a good education in itself.
3: What's okay. that website? Is that GreenGuard.org? Or? Uh,
4: green, GreenGuard.org, I believe, is the website, yes.
3: Okay, great. Well, thank you so much again. We do appreciate having you. I look forward to seeing you in Austin, Texas. This is Joe Hughes, Radio Joe, saying thanks again to Dr. Elliot Horner for being a great sport and joining us today, my co-host, the Z-Man. Another, another milestone, Cliff 205. And we'll be off next week. And, and we will be off next week, but we will return on the 29th. We've got a gentleman from Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, Rick Stonier. We're going to talk about the different types of environmental testing instrumentation out there and what uh, what types of VOC testing and moisture and particulate and so on. I know it's a show Dr. Wow will enjoy a great deal. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will as well. I wanna thank the the engineers, Stone Cold, Austin novak for joining us and helping us out this week and of course most importantly uh, of course tom scarlett don't forget him from ie connections and most importantly our growing group of loyal listeners thanks again and join us next two weeks from today for the next edition of iaq radio
2: Life you lead, not again,
0: is about what you eat. The is about recycling. Hey. Whoa. Ooh,
2: ooh, ooh. All right, ooh, ooh, ooh.
1: this has been another IAQ radio production.